Okay, so um, we are uh, finishing up our Holy Spirit series this morning, and so we'll be in Romans 8. Um, so if you've got your Bible, open it up to there. Um, turn your Bible on, however you see fit. Uh, we've got quite a bit of text here. So this is the last. Can't explore everything um, on the Holy Spirit. We've done what we could in this series, but we'll wrap it up today. And we finish in a glorious passage of Romans 8, which many of you I'm sure are familiar with and love dearly, and rightfully so. Um, it, I, I'm going to cover uh, verse 12 through 29, sort of. I mean, it's just so dense that um, I, won't, I couldn't possibly uh, talk all about everything. The amount of truth and beauty that's in this passage is beyond me, and quite frankly, sometimes I, when I read Paul, I, especially in a place like Romans 8, I just am like, I don't know what to do here. This is there's just so much, um, and so I'll do the best I can. So we won't cover everything in it, but um, if you can, just try to follow along and grab what you can and try to notice what sticks out to you as I read. So Romans 8, 12 down to 29. So... Then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so I was recently reading um, a bit about Walt Disney, the man. And uh, so uh, Walt Disney 
had kind of this incredible, pronounced, obsessive fear of decline, suffering, and primarily death. It, it really started when he was seven years old. He was in his backyard on his farm in Missouri. He spotted a big brown owl, and he snuck up on the owl, and he grabbed it. And of course, when he grabbed an owl, it screeched and hollered and uh, clawed him. So uh, what any normal seven-year-old boy did, he threw it on the ground and stomped it to death. I know, I, that, was, that, was, that was meant to be funny, but uh, sorry. Um, it's not funny, I guess. Terrible to kill owls. Um, so he, 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 this is a true story, I'm not making this. So he later learned at some point, I don't know when, he, he, that um, the ancients had um, considered the owl to be a bad omen, like if you, that it carried with it evil signs and spirits. And so what ended up happening for Walt Disney is, is he ended up having um, this obsessive fear about what the bad that could happen to him. And he developed these nightmares and these dreams that were reoccurring about his death. And it just plagued him over his lifetime and he never really got rid of it. Um, and so, uh, you know, his first big hit, Steamboat Willie, anyone? Anyone seen that? It's the, yeah, some nods, yeah. That's where Mickey Mouse really, we first see Mickey Mouse. And so it was a big hit. Um, and then his next hit, after, or his next um, production after that, anybody know what it was? The Skeleton Dance. Yeah, you can look this up. It's very different than Steamboat Willie. And um, if you look up the Skeleton Dance, it opens with, anyone know? An owl on a tree branch. And it's howling. And then immediately after this, the whole little show is about a graveyard where skeletons pop up out of the ground and dance. Um, the production manager at the time who saw it uh, was disgusted with it. He called it, quote, gruesome crap. And he told Walt Disney's brother to get rid of this and go back to the mice, more mice. Um, so um, Walt's, he thought, about, he thought about death so much, his daughter, Diane, actually uh, later reported that he hired a fortune teller in his early 30s to predict his death. The fortune teller told him he would die at 35. So he uh, became a workaholic and threw himself into his work so he could distract himself and avoid the, what he thought was the inevitable. Now, how he outlived that prediction and then later thought he must have missed heard the fortune teller and thought that she said 55. And so he obsessed over this. And this is why, in part, if you notice, his early hits were consumed around the idea of death. Pinocchio, yeah, um, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. Now, there are hints of redemption in these, but he was consumed with the idea. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I'm not a Walt Disney expert. I want to be clear. I, I read snippets and I'm like, well, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't do a deep dive on him. I don't really know, even know where he stood on the grounds of Christ. He spoke favorably of religion, at least quoted as such. Uh, but I will say, uh, uh, at least in part, I bring that up to just say, obsessing in fear, like obsessive, compulsive fear over the idea of suffering and death isn't wise or healthy. However, um, and this is, I want us to, to be in our minds, avoiding it and never addressing it or thinking about it isn't wise or healthy either. It's living in the tension of it. We should not avoid the idea of it at all. The, the novelist E.M. Forrester wrote that 
Death destroys a man. The idea of death saves him. Death destroys a man, but the idea of death saves him. There's, there's, there's a truth in that that I want to explore. Now, you're like, dude, what is going on? We're talking about the Holy Spirit, and now you're talking about death and suffering. Well, but Romans 8 is a glorious passage, rightfully so. We love to read it. It has some of the most beautiful, it's chock full of these encouraging, beautiful truths, many truths that you've known for years or maybe you've just recently stumbled upon. But if you stop and look carefully at Romans 8, the encouragement, all the encouragement that Paul is giving you about a life in the Spirit, a life with Christ, all this encouragement is paired up with the grim realities of suffering and death. Did you notice it? Um, verse 13, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Verse 17, we suffer with Jesus in order to be glorified with Jesus. Verse 18, I consider the sufferings. It's an accounting term in Greek that he uses there. He's saying, I reckon. I, I think about these things. I try to pair it all up. Verse 20, all of creation was subjected to futility. Futility is a word that means frustration or emptiness. When Paul looks around, he says, everything is corrupted. And it has this like Sisyphean-like feel to it. We can never get ahead. It's terrible. For Paul, although suffering and death are not comparable to glory, they're not inseparable. They always go together. That glory happens because of the death and the suffering. Paul is not uh, spiritually masochistic about suffering and death. Uh, in other words, he's, he's not, I want to be clear, like he doesn't celebrate death and suffering. The Bible is not sentimental or naive optimistically or anything like that about suffering and death. I, I would actually say the Bible hates suffering and death, which I'll get into at the end of this. Um, but the Bible also knows, and you can't read the Bible and not see this, the, the Bible knows and is very honest that it's unavoidable. And it does no good for you in trying to, to, to ignore its presence. And the wisdom literature is full of this. Like if you go to the wisdom literature, like in, in Proverbs, or you go to Ecclesiastes, or you go to Job, and it's full of ideas and stories and truths about the idea of suffering and death, and it wants you to address it. Like here's Ecclesiastes 11, 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Oof, thank you, right? Why is it, so, so why is the Bible always talking about it? If you can take my word for it, like why does the Bible always want you to think about suffering and death? Why is it addressing it and bringing it up? Partly, like I said, it's because it's inevitable. Like there's, you know, um, at the end when he says, for those who love God, all things work together for good, right? And we love that verse. That makes us feel good. And I heard a pastor say one time, that means that all things are, could happen to you. <laughs> Anything. Any terrible thing could happen to you. And you should be aware of that. Now, so why is the Bible wanting to speak that way to you? It's partly because it's, it's, it's suffering. And of course, death in this life, it's, it's inevitable. But that's not it. it, it it's not just that. Um, it's also that suffering decline, you know, as you feel your body start to just kind of decline. Tragedy, death, all of these things, approaching all of these things. It's also, the Bible wants to be clear that it's a connection point for you. 
or I would say it like this, it's, it presents itself as an inevitable, but also opportunity for you. You have a choice there. Um, you can recognize that it is in that space that God is particularly present to you in meeting with you there, or you can ignore that, and you can think of it as a barrier. You, when you go through suffering, it's like you have, it's like a fork in the road, and you can grow hard and bitter and detached, or you can become soft, humble, less judgmental, more grateful, and more aware of who God is and ultimately what he wants for you and the world. And, and, and those, those are all, that's always the opportunity before you. And that here's the thing, that God wants us to know that he's particularly active and close in the places of suffering and even death. And because of who he is and what he's planned, it's just that you, he wants you to know, and the Bible wants you to know that you can have a supernatural kind of confidence and hope, right, when you face it. Doesn't mean you don't cry, but it does mean that you live on the edge knowing that there is an eager expectation of something better. And that might be what I would consider to be the overarching motif of Romans 8. It's this. It's the big idea that I just want to get across, that because of the Spirit of Christ, which we've been exploring this whole series, because of the Spirit of Christ, you can have confidence in the face of suffering and even death because of that, because of the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. How is that possible? Well, if, if, if you want to grasp why that is, what's the Holy Spirit doing and establishing and strengthening in you? What is the Holy Spirit doing in you that can make you confident when you go through a really, really, really hard spell? What do you need to think about? Well, I could say it actually really in a, in, in a, in a I could boil it down to a phrase um, so that you can try to remember because there's so much in Romans 8, it's like, gosh, there's so many beautiful truths. But here's something that you can just memorize. The Spirit is declaring God as a Father to you. And there's everything is in that. If you understand God as Father, then you can actually work out in your mind why and how you should have confidence when you suffer. That you, Jesus earned through his death and his resurrection. He earned that relationship. And the Spirit is the one that is applying it and making it known. And he's, he's shining it upon you. And he's trying to remind you all the time that this is the kind of relationship that you can have. And he says it right here in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, everything I'm going to say is just predicated on that idea. That the Spirit is making sure that you know that you are a child. That, that God isn't a boss, but God is a father. Confidence for tragedy, confidence for hardship, suffering, even death is predicated on that singular relational term, father. G.I. Packer uh, and knowing God, he, he wrote this. You sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Now, I'm aware that um, talking about, because this is all I'm going to talk about, talking about fatherhood could be a tricky business for some of us, right? Because of your experience in life. Because not everybody has had a great experience with an earthly father. But I think, and I trust and I hope and I would ask, I would invite, depending on your history and what you've been through, I, I think if we just reflect enough and can think through what a good, what a truly good and perfect father should be or could be, I think we can start to understand how it could be utterly transformative when we then apply and think that about God. Think about this, that the Spirit is declaring in your heart that you don't have a boss, you have a father. That's what the Spirit is saying to you. Maybe you've thought about that or you've heard that or you've known that for years, but you've never sat and reflected on the implications of it. And so let me just give you a few that I think Romans 8 pretty much spells out for us. Because this is the fatherhood of God is crucial in times of suffering and even death. And here's why. One, a good father searches you. A good father searches you. So Paul doesn't just say, he doesn't say just in case you get weak. No, he assumes you'll be weak. He assumes it. Because that's what suffering does. You go through suffering, you get weak. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of these things come, come upon you. And when weakness comes into you and when it comes upon you, you, you struggle to know what to do, don't you? You, you, you struggle. You, you struggle to find answers. You wonder why. Why is this happening to me? What am I supposed to do? All of these questions flood your mind. Sometimes your worst self comes out. All of these things. And what Paul does is he does something really interesting that I think you just pass over. And it's in verse 27, but he gives God a different name. He calls God a different name that you're not really used to hearing him call. He says this. He calls him the one who searches hearts. It's his name for him. In other words, he's looking into the depths of you, and he's able to look through the confusions, the mistakes, the longings, and he's able to make sense of what's going on, the deepest level of you. I like to think of it this way. He doesn't just see the real you. He sees the real you that you long to be. The, law, the, the, the real you that you long to become, even when it's not crystal clear for you right now. Let me try to, um, by a way of a, like an analogy, let me say it this way. Every parent loves their child. I never met one that didn't. Have you ever met a, have you ever met a parent who um, finds their child a little, how do I say this, difficult? You know what I mean? No, no one's, no one's, no one's aware of this? Okay, all right. Better yet, let me put it this way. <laughs> how about this? Have you ever been around someone who 
Have you ever been around somebody else's kid who you find a bit difficult? <laughs> of course you have. Of course you have. Because you've been around people that you don't like, and they are somebody's kid. Right? So you've had this experience. Now, I'm, I, I've known some parents, very personal. I have known some parents who are aware of the fact that it is their own kid who's a bit trying, who's a bit difficult, who, who grates or wears on people. I have known parents who can very speak very openly that, yeah, I know he, she, yeah, this is, they're, they're hard to deal with. But here's the thing, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. Just there might be, if there's little kids in here, all your parents do not think this about you. But here's the thing. They're, you know what a good parent, you know what a good father does? A good father, while he doesn't ignore that reality of his son or his daughter, he sees beyond it. What a good father does is he, because he, he's, he knows their son or their daughter to the depths. What a good father does is he looks beyond and he looks through the rough edges because he knows the depths of the child. He sees the child on a deeper level than what other people see. He sees the, the weaknesses. He also sees the strengths. He believes in that child even when people criticize the child. That's what a good father does. A good father stands in solidarity with their child because a good father is like, I understand that he or she is annoying to you, but you don't understand the depths of him. You don't understand the complexity of her. That's what a good father does. He knows that what is possible is, you know, over time through perseverance and guidance and love that things will change for the child. Well, if you could think about that, then understand that this is the father in heaven towards you. Because friends, believe it or not, some people find you annoying. Some people find me annoying. I know that's hard to believe. But the Father in heaven, this is, some, this is a profound truth that is being said here. It's what the Bible calls intercession. I'm just trying to make a really complicated, big word of theology simple. It just means to make an appeal for someone and to speak on someone's behalf. Verse 27, he says this, And he who searches hearts, and talking about God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, that's you, Christians, according to the will of God. Now, to be clear, okay, to be clear, notice what he's saying. When the father searches his son or a daughter, he's not so impressed with your innate abilities or something. That's not what he says. If that was the case, at least for me, I would still be a little bit worried. No, what he does is he searches, and he doesn't just see the weaknesses and the struggle. He sees the Holy Spirit searching you. And I know this is mysterious, this is hard to grasp, but you have to understand that what Paul is saying is that the Father in heaven is looking through all the mess, and he's looking into the deep places of your life, and he's looking into all the nooks and the crannies of your heart, and he's looking and listening for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is groaning and interceding on your behalf. And he's saying, look beyond that. Here's who he really is. Here's who she really is. To put it another way, he looks into the depths of you and it's like this. 
the father knows, he searches, he looks into the depths, the deep places, and the Holy Spirit is saying something like this. If this son or it's, if this daughter knew everything that is beyond their comprehension right now, here's what they would ask for. But they don't know that right now. If they knew it, they would ask you for this. And that's what the father hears. He hears that. That's what Paul is saying. Here's how they would handle this situation, Father, if they knew everything that you knew. But they don't know it right now. Someday they will know, but not yet. So in the space and in the tension between, please respond in this way to them. I'm asking, I'm pleading on their behalf. That's what the Father's doing. That's how he's treating you. He's searching you. He knows you. Two, here's the second thing that a good father does. A good father plots for you. He plots things for you. Verse 28, the big verse that we all love, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now pause for a moment. Stop for a moment and think about what he's saying. This is the line that Christians rightfully love to memorize. But it's important to not be misled into a different kind of naivete about it. Paul is not saying, if you really understand God, like if you really love God and you really understood God, you'd just understand that bad things are in fact good things. It's not what he's saying. I think that's just an unjust thought for a lot of injustice in the world to think that way. Because think about it. What is good about disease? What is good about death? What's good about betrayal in a marriage? You want to tell me that's good? What's good about a vulnerable person being neglected or abused? What's good about that? What's good about religious snobbery or greed or hatred inside of a church community? What's good about that? Nothing. There's nothing good about that. That's bad. It's really bad, and it demands action sometimes, and it always deserves sadness, and it deserves our groans. I mean, this is the Bible's really clear about that. Pastor, the late pastor Eugene Peterson wrote this, Christians don't celebrate suffering. We don't make a religion out of it. We are not masochists who think we are being holy when we are hurting, who think personal misery is a sign of exceptional righteousness. While it is good to lament, like there's plenty of churches and I'm like, you've lost the value and the spirit of lament. Some Christians, I do think that they, they, they think somehow they're more mature Christians if all they do is lament. Well, that's not true either. So what's the good that Paul's talking about in 28? What's the purpose that Paul's addressing? Well, here's the thing, right? You need, if you're going to love verse 28, you can't read 28 without 29. You, you keep them together. He says this in the next verse. This is the purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be 
conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the point is not that we have a God who likes to see us suffer. We don't have a father that loves or celebrates suffering. That's not what we're being told. The point is that we have a father that is plotting your transformation into something good when you do suffer. Simply put, God doesn't make bad things good. That's not what Paul says. He makes bad things into chisels that chip away at you and shape you and change you and transform you from the old you to a new you that is something really good and beautiful, which is Jesus. The bad stuff isn't good. It's just that the bad stuff Jesus uses to somehow form you into the image of the Son. You become like him. All the bad can sharpen you. It can cultivate wisdom. But more importantly, it can soften you and stir up your groaning. So we don't celebrate suffering. We trust that we have a father shaping us through it. It's not a boss simply managing it. A boss is a relationship that's typically interested in what you can provide. A father's not like that. A, a good father, a good mother even, right? A, a, a good parent is not interested in their child and what their child can provide. A good father is interested in who you're becoming. That's the primary interest of the father. And this is what God is interested in, is who we're becoming. But if the spirit is declaring him as father, that means he's not just interested in that. He's interested in who we become. My kids don't owe me anything. My concern isn't what they can do for me. My concern is who they are going to be over time. And so I'm always looking into their moments and their circumstances, as hard as they might be. And I don't celebrate when they cry, but I wonder how might this shape them and how can I guide them through it? Okay, so we have a father who searches. We have a, a father who plots for us. Thirdly, we have a good father who groans with us, groans. Well, I think there's amazing confidence that comes from knowing that we have a father that searches us and shapes us. The truth is, <laughs> suffering can feel incredibly isolating and lonely sometimes. Anyone? It's just when you go through that space sometimes, man, you feel like no one understands. You tend to isolate. You tend to feel even lonelier. Paul makes it clear here that there's a lot of groaning going on in this present age. Did you notice that? There's groaning in us, and there's even groaning in the creation. Like literally, according to Paul, the rocks, the ground, the trees are sighing from the pain that is in this world. But here's what's strange. He says this in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So this, is, this little line right here has puzzled translators for many, many years. Because upon literal translation, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is groaning alongside you in pain. Now, if you want to think like a scholar thinks... Here's what they end up doing. What they do is, is they say, well, wait a minute. How can that be? Because on this side of the death and resurrection, there's victory. 
He's one. So why would the Spirit of Christ cry? He knows. I mean, why isn't there just a party in heaven, right? Why isn't heaven just a party looking down upon you while you cry and suffering, saying, well, yeah, just wait till you get here. It's wonderful up here. If you knew that, you wouldn't cry all the time. Why is it that the spirit is in pain? Because the, the, the word here for groaning is literally, it means to sigh with pain, like death pain. So why would the spirit who knows God, who knows what he's capable of, who knows that he will transform all the bad into something good somehow, eventually he'll do all of that. How is it that the, the, the spirit who understands the beautiful, mysterious alchemy that is taking place where all of this bad stuff somehow transforms you into something amazing eventually? How is it that the spirit who knows about all of that is groaning when you groan? Why would he get so close and so intimately involved in the mess again and, that, and cause him pain? Well, actually, it's not complicated. He's a father. And when a, father, when a good father sees pain in their children, they don't celebrate the tears. My kids, my kids cry all the time. And they cry over the most trivial, petty stuff. You know, sometimes I'm like, well, if you could just see this isn't a big deal, you wouldn't cry. It, that never works, right? It never works. And the truth of it is there are moments, my better moments, when they're crying in pain over something that I can see far beyond and I can see, look, this is, this, this is, if you could see what's actually going on, you wouldn't cry. But here's the thing, a good parent, is careful because a good parent meets them in the space that they're in and understands that they don't have the same stinking vantage point as you. So be easy. And the truth of it is a good parent, when they see their child in pain, feels a certain level of pain. That's why they say a parent is only as happy as their unhappiest child. Because when they see them in pain, they feel it. A parent is so intimately connected to their children that in that way. And I'll admit that this is mysterious and strange, That, but this is the truth of the New Testament. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 8. We have a God like this. And, and, and friends, this is, this is really actually weaved through the text. This is not just in Romans 8, it's all over. I mean, look at John 11. In John 11... It's the famous story where Jesus raises Lazarus. And many of you are probably familiar with that story. But, you know, before Jesus goes and visits to find his friend Lazarus dead, he's made aware, right? And Jesus makes this kind of strange riddle-like comment about how Lazarus is just sleeping. But I'm going to go awaken him. So Jesus is aware. I mean, John clues us in. Je Jesus knew he was dead. So Jesus is like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to go awaken him so I can show you so you'll actually believe. And he doesn't celebrate it, but he fully understands what's going on. And do you remember what happens when he shows up? When he shows up and he gets there and they run out and meet him and they fall down and they're weeping. And what does Jesus do? Let me tell you what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do, he doesn't look at them while they're weeping and he doesn't say, 
well, you think this is bad, it's, it's good. This is good. Because I'm going to show you. Because you just don't believe enough. I'll show you how much good I can do. That's not what he does. Even though he is going to do something really good. What he does is he weeps. He groans. Why? You're going to raise him from the dead. But literally right after that, you're going to fix it. Why would, why would a Jesus who's going to fix it still weep? I, I can tell you, I don't fully understand it. Other than the fact that when he sees them weeping, and he sees that from their situation, that death is not as it should be, he also weeps. He's that close to you. We have a father who knows what we're enduring. He knows the difficulty, the mystery, the confusion we feel. You don't pray. When you pray to God in your suffering, you don't pray to a God who's a boss who says, are you kidding? Look, look at all that I've done for you. You're ungrateful. That's not what we have. You don't have a boss who says, suck it up. You have a father who doesn't laugh or celebrate when you're suffering. He grieves and he groans. But he grieves with eager expectation that it will end in your joy. Your suffering will somehow only add to the glory that is to be revealed. That is the main point that Paul is making. That somehow, he doesn't exactly how it all works, but it will actually fuel the glory that will be revealed to you one day. When you are revealed to the rocks and the trees as they cry out and they're longing to see you. They're longing to see. You realize that Romans 8 is saying that the rocks and the ground is crying out, longing to see the day when you are being revealed as who you're going to become. It's amazing. It was Elizabeth Elliot that said one time, if you fully understood what Paul is saying in Romans 8, you would be humble before a clam. Because a clam gets it better than I get it. That a clam understands the pain and corruption that's taken place here. And that one day it will all be revealed as beautiful. And it would, it would just stop us in our tracks if we contemplated it enough. And you know how? Do you, do you wanna, and you know it, but let me just remind you. You know, you know how you know it's true? That, 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 that glory is going to come? Because here's the thing. So when Jesus died, hopefully you know that, and he was resurrected, but when he was dying on the cross, many of you are familiar with what he cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it trails off. Do you know what the next line of Psalm 22 is? Let me read it to you. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. My groaning. Jesus is groaning in pain on the cross and he's ignored. He's rejected. So the, the unbelievable counterintuitive nature to all of this that no one saw coming is that Jesus is groaning. That rejection meant that you never will be. You never will be. 
you will not be rejected when you grow, or him. You will always be heard. That is what he secured. That is what he won. That is what he achieved. And so I pray you know that. I pray that if you, if you haven't heard that yet or you haven't come to that understanding, that you come to that understanding today or this week or this month, that you think through it, that you ask the questions that your spirit wants to ask and that maybe you ask a friend. And if you're already in that space, I, t I pray you take the time to think through these, this reality of, man, maybe I haven't thought through the fatherhood of God enough. And that it conjures up into your mind the next time or this week. Or it, maybe some of you are suffering right now. Maybe you're in a tough patch right now. And you're wondering how maybe you could sit this morning and think about how does the fatherhood change the situation? It doesn't fix everything in the immediate. I know that. But it has to change our perspective. And so as you come to the table this morning, I want you to be at least thinking of that. That his rejection brought you a listening ear of the Father. That it brought him to you. This bread represents Christ's body broken. This cup of wine represents his blood shed. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're someone who's, who's working out a life of real discipleship with Jesus, that doesn't mean that you're sinless. It, you don't have to be a member of this church, but you do need to have an honest confession of Jesus in your heart. If that is where you're at, you're invited to come forward in gratitude for what he's done. If that's not where you're at, I encourage you to stay in your seat, think, ask questions, pray, and trust the Spirit this morning. Let us pray together. Father, may the truth that when we suffer, you're actually not far off from saving us. You're not far off from our groanings, but you're right in the middle of it all. I don't know if even myself fully understands or fully grasps it. I don't know if I fully trust it at moments. I think that there are moments even in myself where I get confused, I get frustrated, I get, I get impatient, and I'm asking for your help. By your Spirit, bring help to us that we have confidence when we enter into the bad place. When I enter into a bad place, when these brothers and sisters enter into a bad place, remind us that you are a father. You're not a boss. And there's a huge difference there. And I trust that we leave with it this morning. It's in Jesus' name.